Uh, buckle your seatbelts. Hebrews, we're going to do it in one night. We can do it. We can do it. Uh, let me pray for us, and we will get started. Oh, wait. Honey, anything? Memorial Day Sunday, which is like the 26th. No class of 26th. Yeah. We, uh, we've gotten some emails. Are we off for Mother's Day? No. So do something for your mother and then come to class. Your mother would want you to come to class. She would encourage you to come to class. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Uh, I pray your spirit would lead us and guide us in all truth. Uh, this book is so amazing, and I am so inadequate to communicate its content. I pray that your spirit would do uh, such a better job of it uh, than I can tonight. And would you help each one of us see and hear and take away uh, tonight what you want uh, specifically for each one of us? Uh, would you be our teacher tonight, please? Uh, we, we need it, and we ask you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Whoops. Nope. Okay, here's what I've been trying to tell you. Children of Israel started in Egypt. God delivered them, remember? They came out by grace through faith under blood. They passed through the Red Sea. They went to Mount Sinai where God gave them his word. They went here, and this is Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea. Remember what happened here? God said, go up there. And they said, we're going to send spies. And God said, okay. They were gone 40 days. They came back. Two said go. Ten said no. Remember as you're telling your kids, your grandchildren, you know. Two said go, ten said no. The whole nation rebels and says, we're not going. And God says, Burger King, have it your way. He says, you want to die in the wilderness? You're afraid your kids are going to die in the wilderness? You're going to die in the wilderness. They change their mind and say, no, we're going to go. We we, we've, we've rethought this, Lord, and we're going to go. And he says, I'm not going with you. They go anyway, they get wiped out, and they wander the wilderness for 40 years. When we start Joshua, the second generation is on the scene, and that was the end of Deuteronomy, is Moses is talking to the second generation, and Joshua then is going to take them into the promised land. And so last time I told you, we kind of walked through this as a, I actually did it in a very confusing way. Uh, imagine that this is the life, a picture of the life of uh, an Israelite, as well as a picture, spiritual picture, for you and for me. So we're redeemed from Egypt, out from under Pharaoh. How do we get out of Egypt? By grace, through faith, in the blood of Christ. We come out, 
Many people then at that point go through baptism. What happens here, we begin to learn God's word. He takes us in the wilderness to begin to work on us. And we encounter many Kadesh Barneas along the way. Hopefully we continue to move forward. And then some people get stuck out here. Some Israelites got stuck out of here, stuck out here. Some Christians get stuck here. What we want to do is go across the Jordan and enter the promised land. This is our inheritance. Yay, thank you. Woohoo! My night is made. You remembered it was the inheritance. Okay, oh, a couple key things uh, about inheritance. Uh, tonight, there's a key word that you are going to get in the book of Hebrews. And that word is rest. Now, I don't know what you've been taught about rest and the promised land and Hebrews. But let me let you in on a little secret. God said they were in the promised land, they were going to be at rest. Yes? Remember, remember that? And the writer to the Hebrews refers to this. They're going to be at rest. Were they at rest here? Were there enemies in this land? Did they have to fight the enemies? So whatever rest is, don't start thinking rest in Hebrews equals heaven. Do you understand what I'm saying? Heaven, there will be no, there will be no battles. So we can't equate what's, what you think of as rest as heaven. You have to put it in terms of it's your inheritance and it's the place where you stop trying to earn or keep your salvation. Why can I be at rest? Because I've been saved by grace through faith in the blood of Christ. How am I kept? Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God praying for me every day. Daddy, he sinned, but I got that one. I covered that one too. Daddy, I see that one. I've taken that away by my blood too. This, as well as the interceding Lord Jesus, keeps me saved forever. We've talked about that quite a bit. That's why this rest doesn't mean heaven in Hebrews. Now, there's once or twice that it does, but anyway, I'm not going to point that out. You'll have to figure that out. Other than that, don't get confused. Many people have been taught in the book of Hebrews, rest equals heaven. Rest doesn't mean heaven. It means that place where you are in God's best. You've ceased working. You're at rest. Assignment completed. There's still going to be battles to be done, as we found out in the book of Hebrews. They're still fighting things, right? Some of us are fighting themselves. They're fighting their own beliefs. But don't, don't go to crazy places, okay? Everyone nod your head like this. Okay, now if you didn't understand it, okay, don't raise your hand. I don't want to see. I don't want to know. Hopefully in a few, within a few minutes you'll get straightened out here. Okay, Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, very simply, is about patient endurance. 
If you had a chance to read all 13 chapters, you saw that theme coming through with other themes, but you saw that theme coming through. Patient endurance. The basics, everyone wants to know. Who wrote it? I don't know. Maybe Paul, maybe Apollos, maybe someone else. We don't have enough information. Uh, There are people who will say, it was absolutely Paul because of. Could have been. It was absolutely Paulos because, you know, it could have been. Or it could have been someone else. I don't know. But whoever it was, was recognized by the early church as someone who was writing on behalf of God. That community recognized this, wherever it came from, and they said, this is from the mouth of God. The community recognized it, and so it was received into the New Testament. When? We don't know. (laughs) What do we know? (laughs) We know that it's in the Bible. Probably A.D. 60 or 65. Why? There is no mention of the temple's destruction. And with the situation that is is going on in the book of Hebrews, it required the temple sacrifices. Therefore, the temple must still be standing. So we're before A.D. 70. Could it be 65, 68, 63, 60, 58? Yes, it could be. I think it's around 60 or 65. Where? I don't know. (laughs) Probably written in Jerusalem, though. At least it was written to, it seems it was written to the people in Jerusalem. Why? It's written to Christians. Notice the number of times, and there's more times than this, but here's just a few of them. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 1, The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, so we must listen very carefully to the truth. Chapter 3, and so dear brothers or dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven. This is a book written to Christians. It's written to people who have been redeemed from spiritual Egypt by grace, through faith, under blood. Don't forget that as you're going through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a marvelous book of encouragement. It's also a horrifying book of warning. (laughs) But I don't want you to go so far with the warning, as I said last week, that you start getting into a lot of spiritual mischief. There's just no reason for it. It's a misunderstanding of what the author is basing his connection to the Old Testament on, and he's, he's going back here. He's going back to Kadesh Barnea. Who are the people from Kadesh Barnea? People who were redeemed from Egypt by grace, through faith, under blood. They went through the Red Sea. They knew God's word. They got out here, and what did they do? They rebelled against the word of God. Did that go well for them? No. 
The book, this part of Numbers is a, it's a warning. The book of Hebrews, wonderful encouragement, patient endurance, fearful warning. There's some warning stuff in Hebrews that we don't talk about as much because we're kind of, we don't know what it means. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my salvation or something. No, you're not. But there's warnings in the book of Hebrews that we all need to pay attention to. It's written to Christians. The situation in Jerusalem seems to have been going something like this. In those early centuries, if I came to Christ, particularly as a Jewish person, the persecution would have been intense. I would have lost my job. I might have lost my family, depending on what happened. And you say, oh my gosh, that's crazy. That doesn't happen today. Oh, it does. It does around the world. Okay, I would have lost my job, maybe my family. Not, not necessarily death, but they may have just kicked me out. Disowned me. Okay, so if I have no money and I can't get a job, question, <laughs> even if I could live in a cardboard box on the street, where am I going to eat? How am I going to stay alive? And what happens to the people who take care of me, right? If maybe they give me bread or maybe they give me whatever. What happens to them? They get whacked. This is extreme social pressure, persecution, right? Does that make sense? This is what's happening to the Christians in these very early decades of the New Testament. The, these Christians... And it seems that these were probably primarily Jewish of Jewish origin Christians living in Jerusalem. They come up with a great idea, they think. What we'll do is we'll go back to Judaism and we'll escape the persecution. I, I mean, what else are we supposed to do? How, how do we live? Now, we'll still be Christians, but we're going to kind of come back here to Judaism. And we're going to hide out under the, the guise of being Jews again so that we can live. Part of me says, gosh, I can't, I can't blame you. The writer of the Hebrews has different thoughts, though. And he basically says, don't do that. This book is about don't do that. So what he does is he presents the superiority of Christ and everything about him in order to encourage and motivate them to remain known as Christians, patiently enduring what's happening. Hebrews 11, it may even mean your death, but death is better than going back to Judaism. There's the book of Hebrews. We can go home. Got it? All right. Within that big context now, let me kind of take it apart. They are at this Kadesh Barnea tipping point. They're retreating back into Judaism, beginning to, to look and smell and, and talk like Jews again, not like Christians who have come out of Judaism. They're at this tipping point, which is why there's warnings in this book. And the writer, whoever he is, 
is writing to prevent further regression or retreat back into Judaism and to promote patient, faithful endurance, which has always been the hallmark of faith for God's people. So that's what he's, that's how he's uh, aiming this book. Here's the big question the book of Hebrews is trying to answer. What is the Lord's counsel to those who are in a time of forced, in quotations, forced patience? Press in and press on. What is the Lord's counsel to those who are in a time of forced patience? They did not want this situation. It has been forced upon them. What is God's counsel to them? It's not retreat to Judaism. It's not run away. It's press in and press on. Follow the example, Hebrews 11, of those who've walked before you in faith and then follow our great example of it, and that's the Lord Jesus. Okay? What he's going to do to encourage them and exhort them is he's going to begin painting this wonderful panorama of how much better Jesus and his work is than Judaism. That's what the bulk of Hebrews is. So as you're reading through it, and you're like, oh my gosh, we're going Moses and houses and angels, and, and then there's covenants and there's blood, and there's what is... Here we go. Here's the three-part outline to the book of Hebrews. This is it. Christ is a superior person, one through six. Christ has a superior priesthood, 7 through 10, and a Christian's superior life principle, 11 through 13. That's it. Remember, the author meant to communicate. He didn't mean to confuse. He meant to communicate. And he's assuming a lot of Jewish understanding, which is why we think these were Jewish believers rather than Gentile believers. Because Gentile believers... You start talking about the tabernacle and sacrifices, and they're going, what? But a Jewish Christian would understand exactly what the author is talking about here. Three-part outline. Let's take the first one. Christ is a superior person, and he begins to lay that out for us in these chapters. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. The Son has brought superior revelation. He holds a superior position. He is the creator, controller, and sustainer of all things. He is the heir, God's heir of all things. He is God's sacrifice and redeemer. He is God's king priest. And he has a superior message. He is God's last word to mankind. Those are the first three verses. He's establishing who Jesus is. 
He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. And so then he goes on in about the next chapter. He talks about he has a greater inheritance and name. He was and will be worshipped by angels. He is not a created servant, but the eternal sovereign Lord. He is now seated as God's king priest, and he is the son, not a servant. That's why it says in verse 14, Therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. So he's comparing and contrasting the Lord and his message to the prophets, then to the angels. He's a superior messenger to the angels. Pause. This causes the author to go, whoop, parenthesis. Let's chat. And so chapter 2, 1 through 4. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away from it. What is the subject of this sentence? The truth. We must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away from it. What's the author's point? I've just told you he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. The message he's bringing is better than either of those. Puts on the brakes. We'd better pay attention to this better messenger with a better message or else we will drift away from it. What are we going to drift away from? It. The Word of God. So he says, do not drift from God's Word. God has spoken. Take heed how you respond. If in earlier days these things happened when the prophet spoke or the angels spoke, how much more do you think God's going to be paying attention to what his son said? Right? And you'd be nodding your head going, well, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> I mean, if that's what he did in those days, whoa, here goes the son. I'd better pay attention. Because what does God know we're likely to do? start picking flowers, I start walking over here, I just start drifting away from the Word of God, and I can even drift so far that I might go back to Judaism. So he says, Jesus is the last word from God. Don't drift from what he said. Pay attention to how you respond to his word. God's always watching how people respond to his word. If that's what he did then, guess what he might do now? He's going to take this real serious. That's his point in chapter 2. He goes on then. He winds it back up. He has become the perfect leader, and he talks about that in chapter 2. He has defeated the devil, and he has become a merciful high priest. Why is he able to become a merciful high priest? Because he became like us. We had flesh and blood, so he took on flesh and blood that he might become not only our sacrifice, but our amazing high priest 
who has walked where we walked, and he's always walked there first. Anytime you and I go through anything, guess who's been there first? There's footprints in the dust or in the sand ahead of us. He's already walked them. And however forceful you're feeling this, his was more. But his footprints are always ahead of you in the dust or on the beach, if you like that little poem. He's writing about Christ as a superior person. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. Oh my gosh, here he goes. He's better than Moses. <laughs> Ba-boom. I mean, this is just like, wah. I mean, if you're a Jewish person, I mean, even Christians, we hold Moses in high regard. If you're a Jewish person, I mean, this is, I, I, I had a, a really good friend growing up. His name was Jack. He happened to be Jewish. And every time I'd visit his home, he had one picture of, I mean, it was a framed picture, like an oil painting of someone I didn't know and Moses. There were two pictures that hung in their house. I mean, Moses was rightly venerated by a Jewish person. He's an amazing man. But that's why we've drawn the chart. Because we live under the second Moses. Who's the greater Moses? Oh my gosh, so he just goes, boom, he throws the gauntlet down in chapter three. The son is superior to his servant Moses. He stops the car again. I can imagine he gets so excited. He says, don't doubt God's word. And that takes him a little while to talk about. He does that in chapter three. He starts in seven. And he's talking about the house, and he's talking about uh, Moses was um, the caretaker of a house, but the son built the house. And so the son, the builder of the house, deserves more honor than the guy who just took care of the house, the people in the house. And you go, yep, that's right. Who can escape that? And so he goes on and he says, so don't doubt it. Be careful then, verse 12. Dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. What are they doing? Turning away from the living God. Back to Judaism. I'm turning away. And so he's just, man, he's going for them. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. Do you know this? Do you know what sin does? One of the things sin does? Remember sin bad? Sin equal bad. You know, if you're a math person, sin equal bad. What else does sin do to you and to me? It deceives us. Have you ever been deceived by sin? I knew you had. I haven't. I'm a Christian. <laughs> Sin will deceive you. How is it possible? Here we are in our study of Jonah. How is it possible that Jonah, who is in rebellion against God's word and God's will, can go to sleep in the boat? He had a peace is what Laurie pointed out to me last week. He had a peace, but it was a wrong peace. The peace that passes understanding 
will only come when you're in God's word and God's will. Jonah reminds us it's possible to get a peace and be in rebellion against God. You understand what she pointed out? It's a great observation. Why did I get there? Oh, I don't know. Oh, because of deceit. How could Jonah do that? How could he have this peace that passes understanding? Because sin deceived him. And he thought, I have a peace. This must be right. God appointed a boat for me. I had enough money to pay to get on it. It just happened to be going to Tarshish. This is great. I'm, I'm right where I need to be. Doug's message illustration this morning, the person who was in sin and said, I think I'm in a better place spiritually now than I was then. And Doug says, what? <laughs> what? No. So we have to be reminded of a person like Jonah. There is a peace that can come with deception, the deception of sin. It is not true peace. Oh, you should be writing this down. This is so good. The peace that passes understanding that Paul talks about will only come when we're following God's word and following God's will. There are other pieces. Okay, said it enough times. Okay, don't doubt God's word. So first he says, what was the first one? What does he say not to do with God's word? Don't drift. Now he's telling him, don't doubt it, right? He says, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin. And what happens when we get deceived by sin? We get hardened against God. Where did it start? Because I started to drift from God's word and then I began to doubt God's word. And the deceitfulness of sin set in. And I believed I had a peace from God. And so I kept moving in my wrong direction. You understand this? Oh, this is good stuff. Then he, he starts it back up again. Oh, and he says, don't be like Israel's first generation who rebelled. And what happened to them? They missed out on God's inheritance for their life. Now, God was still kind to them. He was still merciful and gracious to them. But they did not inherit what he had intended for them to inherit. Why? Because they drifted and they doubted God's word. They didn't warn each other. Remember Caleb and uh, Joshua are trying to warn people. What was going to happen to them? The people were going to stone them. Remember that? We don't want to know what God said. Stone him. That's the deceitfulness of sin and hardening against God. Okay. He winds it back up. Back to Jesus. He's better than Moses. He can lead into God's promised rest. I told you this the last time. Who's led them? Who led Israel into the promised land? Joshua, not Moses. Moses cannot lead them into the promised land because it's not about do's and don'ts and Legal stuff. Who leads into the promised land? Yeshua. Jesus leads into the promised land. Now he's writing to Christians. Jesus is the one leading us into our promised land, our inheritance, that thing that God has set aside for us, all of us, and all of us individually, to do. 
Who leads us there? Jesus, not Moses. Okay, he's a superior leader for God's people. Ooh, golly. You begin to see what the author is doing here? Say yes, you begin to see what the author is doing here. Thank you. Keeps me going. And this guy writes a lot of stuff. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Here's what the author is doing. I know you're beginning to see it, but we're going to keep painting the picture. See what, see what the author is beginning to do here? Okay, you want to go this way? What's this? This is better in every way. You know that. See what he's doing? Audrey has like this. No, I don't see it yet. It'll get clearer. They're moving this direction. He's going, whoa. You're giving up better and best for what's less, what's inferior. By the time he gets later into Hebrews, right, this doesn't even work. That's why the priest had to keep giving sacrifices over and over and over and over. This doesn't even work, and you knew it, and you left this to go to this. Why are you coming back? This doesn't work. Begin to see how he's working this argument, so he leads you, he leads you down the road, and then he goes, puts on the brakes, he goes, hey guys, this guy's better than Moses, why are you going back here? If you acknowledge that he's got a better message, and he's a better messenger, and he's a better leader than Moses, cease and desist, stop, no worky, okay. He's a superior leader. Jesus is a superior leader for God's people. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. Oh, he takes out his sword again. And he's better than Aaron. Whoa! I mean, this, this guy, whoever this is, he's just merciless. Okay? He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. A-A-R-O-N. He's going to keep heaping this on, this better, 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 better thing. Oh, great, great stuff. He's better than Aaron. He has a superior appointment. What high priest got to appoint himself? No one. Then it says, every, it says chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. Um... Let's see. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins, and he's able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. Remember, we saw people in the Old Testament, we've seen them so far, they want to be a priest, right? What happens? Oh, stuff like the earth opens up and swallows them. Um, Stuff like 250 of them get wiped out in a plague. 
God takes this thing kind of serious. Okay. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. Get this for the Lord Jesus. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No. He was chosen by God who said to him, You are my son. Today I become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then he talks about Jesus functioning on the earth like uh, a person being prepared to become a high priest. And then he kind of comes back to this whole thing on Melchizedek. So he's better than Aaron. He's a better leader. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's going to go on. He's going this whole Melchizedekian thing. He's got a better Levitical. He's, he's got a better priesthood. That's, he's going there next. But, oh, that's a, let me finish first section. Gosh, I'm so excited. Christ is better than Aaron. He has a superior appointment. He says in 5.11 through 6.20, there is much more we'd like to say to you about this, about Melchizedek, but it's difficult to explain since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. This is ouchy language. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead... You need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. About what? God's Word. Don't lose track of this. We're still talking about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to us. Ugh. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. In this word is training is hymnazo. Does that sound like a, a familiar word to you? Hymnazo is where we get our word gymnasium. What's he saying? The mature are in the spiritual gym working it out every day. So then he says in 6, So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental of importance of repenting from evil deeds, etc., etc. And he goes through all these things. Then he gets to the scary passage. Verse 4, for it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. And some of you secretly are holding onto the table white-knuckled right now. What in the world is he talking about? It's so simple. You're going to go, what? Ready for a deep breath? All right. What he's saying is, 
Okay, if, so, gosh, why did I do it in front of a circle? I got this in my circle. If you're here, okay, you've already gotten the basics under your belt and this and this and this, and you've tasted of this and you've experienced this and this and this and this, and then you go down here and you do this, and you continue in this, it's impossible for someone continuing in this to repent, right? So straightforward. Someone who's continuing in sin is not repenting. If they were repent, we're good. Now you say, well, wait a minute. What if they don't repent and they die? Wait a minute. It doesn't say salvation. It says repent. And you say, well... Well, wait a minute, isn't that the same thing? Oh, my goodness, heaven forbid, no. If this means salvation, who is salvation dependent on from this passage? No. Who is salvation dependent on in this passage if you want to make it? It's on you. This is ridiculous. This is contrary to every New Testament teaching. It cannot mean you lose your salvation. Because if I, it's, it's, it's impossible to restore me back to repentance. Well, then Peter's lost. I mean, you deny Jesus three times, you're probably out of a club. <laughs> While Peter continued in his sin, he was not repenting. Once he repented, what did the Lord do? While Jonah is still in the boat, what's he doing? Sinning. It's impossible for those who are still sinning to be brought to repentance. Have you ever talked to anyone who's, right, they've chosen sin, continuing in sin. They'd rather be in the sin than they would would rather repent. Yes, if you don't know anyone like that, you don't get out much. (laughs) People who are continuing in sin aren't ready to repent. Number two, it doesn't say salvation. It says repent. Why? Because it would be contrary if if it were salvation to every other New Testament teaching. And it makes salvation dependent on me. That is something I do not want. One more piece of information. Beginning of chapter 6, It says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead. Go on instead is an interpretation, but it's of a passive verb. In a passive verb, the action is being done to me. I am not doing the action. Let us go on. What it means is, let a, it's it's um, about being born, B-O-R-N-E, not B-O-R-N, B-O-R-N-E, held up, carried. Let us go on. Let us continue to be carried. Let us continue to be born by God. And that's why he says, and God willing, we will do these things, right? God is carrying us. Okay, I think I've made enough of that. He says in these words, don't become dull to God's word. Know the word, believe it, apply it, and grow. 
Why? Because he is a superior priest for his people. Section 1 summary. Christ is better than the prophets. He has a superior message. He's better than the angels. He's a superior messenger. He's better than Moses. He's a superior leader. He's better than Aaron. He's a superior priest. What are you thinking? Look, he's so much better. And you knew that. But you've, you're trying to escape persecution, and this is the way you're choosing to do it, but what you're doing is you're throwing Jesus under the bus. So he says, don't drift. Don't doubt God's word. Don't get dull to it. By this time, they were supposed to be teaching other people. Instead, they were having to go back to the milk. He says, don't do these things. Warnings, warnings, warnings. Okay, chapter 6. Let's see, did we finish that scary one? Uh, let's see. Oops, where's chapter 6? Yeah. Uh, oh, the other, okay, here's the other scary part. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Where's the, where's the, what's rain? Blessing. Okay, blessing is falling on all these people in his analogy here. What happens if the ground doesn't produce fruit? Farmer's going to burn it off. Does he destroy the land? No. But the fruit's gone. Remember the first generation? He didn't burn the land, but he burned any fruit they had. 1 Corinthians 3, some of us may escape the flames, but have nothing left on the other side. Same warning. Watch out. Watch out. Dear friends, Verse 9 of chapter 6. Even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the examples of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Christ is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. Now he moves on. He's got a superior priesthood. Okay, if that wasn't enough for you, here we go again. He's part of a better order. Melchizedek. What? Melchizedek. Woo. He's Melech, which is king in the Old Testament, and Tzadik, righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. A, it could be, Melchizedek could be a Christophany, a, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity. Possible. In fact, most people would say that's what it is. Some of the rest of us would say, you know, it's probably a guy named Melchizedek. And he's still special, 
But the writer to the Hebrews grabs this snapshot that we have of Melchizedek and he makes a comparison between that guy who shows up out of nowhere and who blesses Abraham and then poof, just as fast, he's gone off the scene. And so we have this little snippet in Genesis of this guy named Melchizedek. And the writer of the Hebrews goes, you know what, he's like Melchizedek. Wow, what? <laughs> and he, listen to all these things he comes away with from Melchizedek. The Melchizedekian order is superior to the Levitical order. Why? Because Aaron, through the loins of Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek is better than Levi, Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. Okay? Does that make sense? The other reason is because of Jesus' indestructible life. When the high priest changed, guess what? If you were friends with that high priest and he died, oh, gee, you might not get your prayers and stuff taken care of the same way you used to. Jesus... Part of why he is a superior priest is because he has an indestructible life, an eternal life, a never-ending life. He never forgets. He never shows favoritism. He's always at work on our behalf. He also has God's oath. No one else had God's oath because of Jesus' own purity and holiness. He gets, he's a superior priest part of a superior order, and his ministry is unrivaled in its effectiveness. Let's see, 725, you know this verse. Therefore, he, meaning Jesus, is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He never forgets our story. He never forgets one thing you or I have done. He never neglects to bring that up to his father in, in whatever way he knows needs to be prayed. His ministry is unrivaled in its effectiveness. Christ has a superior priesthood. He's part of a superior order. He's got a better covenant. He's got the new covenant rather than the old covenant. Gosh, really, 721 can't be. All right, we're going to go fast. He has a superior priesthood, a better covenant. It's new and better with better promises. It's not old, faulty, or out of date. The new covenant in Jeremiah 31, God says, I will, I will, I will. There is no if you will, then I will, which is the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. If you, then I. This one is, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he promises inner transformation, spiritual blessing, and the removal of sins. Remember from our discussion, um, maybe in Leviticus, maybe, maybe in Exodus, I don't know, I don't remember. The priest, the high priest can only bless the people out of the covenant that's in force at the time. So if the old covenant is in force at the time, the high priest, Aaron, can only give you blessings out of this suitcase of Blessings from the covenant. Over here, there's a new covenant with new blessings. And the new high priest, the better high priest, the Lord Jesus, has better blessings to give us than Aaron had. 
And those are the things he blesses us with. A new mind, a new heart, forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Those are the blessings that we have under the new covenant. And the Lord Jesus has given that to every person who says yes to him. He is a part of a better order. He has a better covenant. He ministers in a better sanctuary. It's not heavenly. I'm sorry, it's heavenly. It's not earthly. It's the actual sanctuary, not just a copy of it. Unbelievable. Remember that uh, uh, God told Moses, when you build the tabernacle, make sure you do everything just like the plans I showed you? Where are the plans from? Heaven. You say, what? Read Revelation. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we'll get there. You will see almost every piece of furniture described in the tabernacle in heaven in the book of Revelation. Because that's the original from which God gave Moses the plans and said, make it just like this one. Jesus doesn't go to the earthly one where the other priests go. He goes to heaven, and he goes into the real one. (laughs) It's the actual sanctuary, not just a copy of it. A better order, a better covenant. He ministers in a better sanctuary. He's offered better blood. His blood is superior in every way to the blood of bulls and goats. It's not superior, uh, I mean, just lightly superior. Um, What did the blood of bulls and goats do? It covered the sins for one year so that God could come back the next year at the Day of Atonement and decide if he was going to collect on the debt or not. Remember, that's what the Day of Atonement is. God says, okay, here's your stack of sins. I'm going to come back next year and settle up. And he would come back next year and say, you know what? Go ahead, we'll charge another year on this. When did God take care of the, of the debt on the credit card? At the cross. That's why he says, in mercy, he passed over the sins committed beforehand. He charged them up, and Jesus had that on his account too. Not just ours, but he had that whole raft of sins that he took care of on the cross His blood is superior in every way. And so what does he say in chapter 10? He says, don't discard God's word. Persevere, patiently endure. When you get to 10, 10, 19, we can, is is this crazy? And so, dear brothers and sisters, chapter 10, verse 19, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Out of all the, I mean, the blood of Jesus has done so many amazing things. Here's one more amazing thing it's done. It lets you walk into the throne room any time you want and say, Daddy, I need a chat. And you know what he does? Go away, son, you bother me. (coughs) Nope. You know, whatever he's doing, (laughs) he sets it aside. He turns in his chair to give you his full attention. And he says, Bill, I'm listening. The blood of Jesus has done that. Not me. The blood of Jesus has done this. Oh, my goodness. Okay. On and on and on and on and on. What else does the blood of Jesus do? Uh, John 1.29. What does the blood, of, uh, the blood of bulls and goats do? Covers. Covers. 
hides. Behold the Lamb of God who? What does the blood of Jesus do? Takes it away. Where is my sin? It's no longer on me. It got put on him. And it no longer remains on me. That's why he can treat me as if I'd never sinned. Amazing. So the author says, don't discard God's word. Don't drift. Don't doubt it. Don't get dull to it. Don't discard it, but persevere, patiently endure. End of section two. He's got a better order. He's part of a better order, the order of Melchizedek. He has a better covenant, the new covenant. He ministers in a better sanctuary, the one in heaven, not the one on earth. And he's offered better blood. The other reason his blood is better is because it was voluntarily offered. I can't imagine a bull or a goat being happy. They, maybe they don't know what's going on. So they're, at best, they're ignorant. But they might not want to go wherever they're going to be led. <laughs> right? Jesus willingly went there, voluntarily offered better blood. Section three, last section, a Christian superior life principle. Okay, do you see now, is this making more sense what he's doing? Hey, you guys, better, 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 better. Why do you run back here? What's, what's back here? Nothing. Nothing is here, but as long as you stay fixed on doing it this way, you, you, can't, you can't have this. You can have it this way or you can have it this way, but you can't have it both ways. And you shouldn't have it this way because everything up here is better or best. This is his argument through the book. I hope if nothing else you go, okay, I kind of understand the guy's argument. It's why do you want to leave this for this? Well, because I can't eat. Good. So what does he do? Chapter 11. Let me tell you about some heroes of faith. People who patiently endured. And so chapter 11, the hall of faith, the hall of fame, hall of faith. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. Opposite, what are you earning for yourself? A bad reputation. Not a good reputation. You want to escape to Judaism, you're earning a bad reputation for yourself. You'd rather earn a good reputation. And so he lists all these people. Faith is described and defined before the patriarchs, of the patriarchs, Moses' faith, faith during the conquest, faith in trials and tough times, and then the victory of faith. And so he encourages them, patient endurance, walk by faith, live by faith. You believed all this stuff was going to happen. What's broken in on you that you now think this isn't going to happen? You ever been really in a squeeze, really in a vice? Guess what you start forgetting? This. Because this begins to take over. Got it. Got it. That's why we're not supposed to forsake giving up meeting together. So that we can encourage each other. 
when times get really, really hard. So he goes through the heroes of faith. He talks about the patient endurance of faith. He says, be encouraged by Jesus' example. If you're not encouraged by any of the Old Testament figures, be encouraged by Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. If you can't go to anybody else, look at Jesus. By the way, even in the Old Testament, some people got delivered and some didn't in the hall of faith. But what does God say about those people? Did you, have you, <clears throat> chapter 11, oh, seriously, <sighs> chapter 11, beginning in 35, the second part of verse 35, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God, refusing to what? You see what he's doing? Refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and then he goes through these horrible things that were done. Some died by, and then he goes through those things. Some this, this is verse 38. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection or maturity without us. So he goes through, be encouraged by Jesus' example, be assured of God's love, be assured of God's grace. And then 12, 25, then he goes on and he gives one more scary warning it says, be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. Again, what are we talking about? The word. The word. Be careful that you don't refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For the people of Israel didn't escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger. We will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. What's he telling them? God takes his word seriously. This is a better word from a better messenger. And you better remember that God is watching and listening to how we obey his word. He doesn't just talk to hear himself talk. He speaks with a purpose. He speaks with life. He speaks life-giving words. And he wants us to then obey him and serve with reverence. Heroes of living by faith, the patient endurance of faith, uh, the blessings of faith. Yeah, 13. Oh, gosh, 12. Okay, someone asked me a question about this earlier. It said, okay, Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered? What? Remember reading that in chapter 5? Some of you. And you're like, huh, what does that mean? What is one of the marks of being a true son or daughter of God, according to chapter 12? Discipline, chastening. Without chastening, I don't know exactly what that meant, but without the chastening that God the Father did to the Son, Jesus would have missed one of the marks of being a true son of God. 
but Jesus hasn't missed out on anything. <laughs> and so the father did chasten him. Please remember there is a difference between chastening for correction and a chastening, a chastening for perfection. Correction means I'm in sin and I need to be corrected. Perfection means I'm not in sin, but I'm not all I could be yet. How is that possible for the human Lord Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. But that's what the text says. So even in the chastening, it's another mark that Jesus is a true and legitimate son of God. Otherwise, chapter 12 doesn't apply to Jesus, and everything applies to Jesus. Okay, patient endurance of faith. Then the spiritual blessings of faith. We have fellowship. We have living... Uh, oh, gosh, we have... Mm. It's so much. Ah, gosh. Okay, well, we have these things. You can read them yourself. They're so good. We have fellowship. We have true price tags. We know what should be priority and what shouldn't be. Living in faith, walking with God, we know what should be high priority and what should be lesser priority so we can live with contentment. Do you know how people, how many people, how, how many people do you think these days are living with contentment? Do you? So that somebody says, I don't know what you got, but I don't know how you can be living with contentment. Don't you see what's happening? Don't you this? Don't you that? Don't you the other thing? How can you have contentment? <laughs> I didn't used to. Let me tell you about my Jesus. You just got your pulpit. <laughs> Take the opportunity. Jonah chapter 1 that Cody talked about. There it is sacrifices, living with joy. Oh, leadership, living in trusting submission. If he's really better, a superior leader, why don't we trust him? It's a blessing we have. He's ready, willing, and able to be trusted. You know, how... Oh, sacrifices, we can live with joy. Power, living with Christ in us. And so the last section, he goes through the heroes of living by faith, the patient endurance of faith, the spiritual blessings of faith, and he concludes with a faithful believer loses nothing of true value. You may lose your life, you Jewish Christian in Jerusalem. You may lose your life, but you will lose nothing of value. And you'll gain a good reputation for yourself and for Christ. He exhorts them and encourages them in this book to stay the course, press in and press on, even though it's really, really hard. Five exhortations from Hebrews. Don't drift from God's word. Don't doubt God's word, his character or his power. Don't become dull to God's word. Don't discard God's word. Don't disobey God's word. Don't shrink back at your Kadesh Barnea. Are you at a Kadesh Barnea? Maybe with money. Maybe ends don't meet. And you're tempted right now to make your offerings optional. Maybe uh, a Kadesh Barnea of friendship. Your circle is abuzz with social issues of the day. Better keep your head down and your mouth shut rather than courageously standing up for Jesus and a biblical worldview. Dreams. This isn't the way life was supposed to work out. By now I was supposed to have or to be, you fill in the blank, 
And so you're tempted to take matters into your own hands rather than waiting on God. Are you at a Kadesh Barnea? Look to Jesus. Listen to his voice through his word. Talk to him first and most and seek his help. Hold on to your confession, your testimony, your witness by faith as the heroes of old did. Remember Hebrews 11.6, God is pleased with and rewards faith. I don't know how he will reward you. I'm not suggesting it's material. But God will reward faith. Press in and press on. Tonight, we're not going to take the time to do it. I had two little uh, choruses. Because it says, one of the things priests do in chapter 13, verse 15, Therefore let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. So I've included two little choruses there. Sing these on the way home. Sing them tonight. Sing them tomorrow. Sing them to yourself. Sing them out loud. I don't care. Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God as is fitting for a room full of priests. For next week, back to the Old Testament, read Joshua 1 through 5. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. He is better. He is the best. Would you continue to give us faith and patient endurance when times get tough so that we may be found uh, with a good reputation for ourselves and making a good reputation for you and for the Lord Jesus, that we would never bring you shame or dishonor, but only glory. We love you and we thank you for your word and for your teaching. Encourage us, exhort us tonight and this week with your word. We pray, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. See you in a week.